the most BS fact check that you've ever seen. I predicted actually that Big Tech would smack me down for that study that I reported to you last week. And lo and behold, they did. Then, I see no reason not to believe Tucker Carlson's claim that the NSA read his emails. And today I'm going to tell you why. Plus the crime wave hitting our country. A Lakota person claims Mount Rushmore is stolen and the Olympic Committee disqualified a US runner for marijuana. I'm Liz Wheeler, welcome to The Liz Wheeler Show. Okay, before we get started today, a quick story. I went to Ohio. My family and I went to Ohio to visit my parents for the 4th of July weekend. It was marvelous, wonderful. 4th of July is my favorite holiday, as I mentioned last week. But by far the most hilarious part, we go to the community parade, right? Um, 4th of July parade. And we're sitting we're sitting on the side in the little apron of grass that you always sit in when you're watching a parade. And Senator Rob Portman walks by, as politicians do. I don't know if this is something that they do in parades and 4th of July parades in all cities and states in the country, but in Ohio, they always do. Uh, the senators and the congressmen and the candidates always wa- walk in the parade. So Senator Portman goes past, and my dad, from his little beach chair, he's wearing you know, a hat, he has a camera to take pictures, he's sitting in his little beach chair, and he hollers at Senator Portman. He goes, stop the spending, and continues to do this. Now, Portman actually isn't marching. He's driving, I don't know if it was a Model T, some kind of antique car. And it appeared when my dad started hollering at him that he started speeding up. I don't know if that's just my imagination, my uh, how I experienced it. So, so funny. I could not stop laughing. And the man, the gentleman whose yard, I guess, we were sitting on because we were sitting in the apron on uh, that grassy patch by the road, he tells my dad, you can sit in my lawn anytime. <laughs> so I guess Ohioans feel the same way about Portman's rhino ways. Uh, we also saw J.D. Vance in the parade. It was pretty funny. He was handing out Senate literature. And he walks over to me and hands me his literature. And he goes, hi, I'm J.D. Vance. I'm running for Senate. And I say to him, yeah, I know. You've been on my show. <laughs> And I don't think he I don't think he recognized me. I was wearing a hat, just got my hair cut, holding my baby, wearing sunglasses. Uh, pretty funny. We also, last note on this, we also went to mass on the 4th of July, as you do every Sunday and on holidays. And it was really, it was a beautiful mass for one thing, but at the very end, it was the most moving experience. And maybe it's because I'm a mom now, maybe it's a rite of passage that mom mass makes moms cry. I don't know. But every single person in that entire church stayed in their pew at the end of mass. After the priest had walked out, after the closing rites, they stayed in their pew. They did not move a muscle until the very last word of the very last verse of the final song, the closing song, which was America the Beautiful. It, I I kid you not, it gave me the chills. It brought tears to my eyes. And so often people ask me if there's hope for America. And let me tell you, sitting in that church with 500 people, so many little children, the future of our country, seeing the strength of the people and the love that they have for our country, there is hope for America. It was absolutely moving. I hope your your 4th of July, your Independence Day celebrations were fabulous as well. So as we talk about how to fight for the security and the freedom of our country, let's also talk about your security online. Let's talk about ExpressVPN. There are a lot of things that I search for online, you search for online, that aren't anybody else's business. We're private people by nature. You don't want anybody else to know what you're searching for. And it doesn't matter if you use private mode or you go incognito. I recently learned that that's not good enough. It doesn't stop your internet service provider from being able to view every single website that you've ever visited. Not only can internet service providers view every single website that you've ever visited, they can sell that information to advertising companies. Yeah, the creepy just compounded, absolutely compounded. That's why even when I'm at home, I never go online without using ExpressVPN because I want 
to protect my information. And ExpressVPN is an app that reroutes your internet connection through their secure servers so that your internet service provider cannot see the websites you visit. They keep all your information secure. They encrypt all of your data. All you have to do is tap one button and you're good. So protect your online activity today. Visit my exclusive link, expressvpn.com slash Liz, and you can get an extra three months free on a one-year package. That's expressvpn.com slash Liz. expressvpn.com slash Liz to learn more. Use ExpressVPN just like I do. Okay, this next story is absolutely unreal. And I want to just make sure that one thing is very clear at the onset of this. I will not back down. I will not be silenced. I will not stop reporting the truth to you and talking about reality. This story is such bullshit. And I know the control room is probably surprised that I'm using that word. Well, just wait until you hear this. This all started because PolitiFact and FactCheck.org levied fact checks against me. By the way, this is exactly what I predicted. So let's talk about what happened. Last week, I presented to you a vaccine study, a study on the COVID-19 vaccine. This study concluded, based on the data that they had analyzed, that for every three lives saved by the COVID-19 vaccine, the vaccine caused two deaths. Now, of course, that's a pretty significant finding. This study concluded this based on statistical analysis, data analysis. Now, when I presented this study to you, I did not give an opinion on this study. I did not say, well, given this study, clearly we should, our government should not be recommending this vaccine for anybody except the absolute oldest, sickest, and most vulnerable people. No, I did not give an opinion. I specifically did not opine on this. I just read you the title of the study, the methodology of the study, and the conclusion of the study. I said, it's a big deal, and I wanted you to hear the information for yourself. And I said, this is a test for big tech. If they fact check me, if they restrict the reach of this information, my posts, then you'll know that it's not merely an exercise in stopping misinformation or fake news for big tech. No, that if they fact check me, if they stifle me, you'll know that they don't want you to hear the truth because they won't even let me read, read, not opine, read a journal article, a peer-reviewed journal article to you. That's, what, that's where this started. So the journal itself was under tremendous pressure, I imagine, because the findings of the study were so significant. They retracted the study. And this is where I call absolute BS. By the way, the bones of the fact checks that were leveraged against me by PolitiFact and by factcheck.org, this is, this is, this is what happened. Okay. The journal itself retracted, which is absolute BS, and this is why. I'm sure it's just, by the way, political pressure, either from politicians or government organizations or from the biased scientific community who are more loyal to radical leftist ideology than they are to science. Here's why this journal retraction is BS. This is from the Politica Fact article, and I quote, The researchers said that they calculated from a large Israeli field study the number of people who needed to be vaccinated to prevent one death and that they used the Adverse Drug Reactions Database of the European Medicines Agency and the Dutch National Registrar to get the number of vaccination cases reporting severe side effects and the number of cases with fatal side effects. So PolitiFact goes on and says, the researchers concluded for three deaths prevented by vaccination, we have to accept two inflicted by vaccination. The European Medicines Agency, however, warns that its data on adverse reactions can't be used on its own to conclude whether a vaccine caused death. This is from the European Medicines Agency. 
The information on this website relates to suspected side effects, i.e. medical events that have been observed following the administration of the COVID-19 vaccines, but which are not necessarily related to or caused by the vaccine. These events may have been caused by another illness or be associated with another medicine taken by the patient at the same time. PolitiFact goes on to say four days later, the journal appended a note to the study expressing concerns about the study and calling its main conclusion incorrect. The note said, the journal is issuing this expression of concern to alert readers to significant concerns regarding the paper cited above. Serious concerns have been raised about misinterpretation of the data and the conclusions. They finalize by saying, this is PolitiFact, by the way, finalizes by saying, with the journal backing away from the study due to its data misrepresentation and Wheeler not acknowledging that in her report, we rate Wheeler's claim mostly false, end quote. Okay, first of all, what I reported, which was reporting on the study itself, cannot be false. I was reporting that the study existed. Now, if you think the study is flawed, fine, you're wrong, but you're entitled to your opinion. But me reporting on the study itself cannot be fact-checked because I merely reported on the study without opinion, which was the point of reporting on the study without opinion. They don't want my opinion on there, fine. They also, it's now clear, don't want science studies. That's number one. So then we move on to factcheck.org. Factcheck.org writes, the COVID-19 vaccines have been shown in trials and real-world application to be safe and effective. By the way, they're allowed to opine, okay? They're allowed to opine, but I'm not. The COVID-19 vaccines have been shown in trial and real-world application to be safe and effective, but a paper shared widely online claimed that vaccines caused two deaths for every three lives saved. Experts say the analysis misinterpreted data and was flawed, and it has now been retracted by the journal that published it. Fact check goes on to say, unverified reports of adverse events that occur following receipt of a vaccine have been a key source of misinformation for months. As we've repeatedly documented, anyone can submit a report to the U.S. system, and the reports alone are not proof of a link to a vaccine. By the way, let me just interrupt myself. That's not true. Even in the U.S. VAERS system, doctors are involved in the reporting. It's not just any person anywhere that can log on and report this. So that's incorrect. But they go on to say, in the latest iteration of that type of data being misrepresented, a peer-reviewed paper published in a scientific journal used it to dubiously claim that the COVID-19 vaccines were causing deaths at such a scale that they nearly rival the number of lives saved through the vaccines. Well, yes. The paper, this is keeps going, fact check keeps going. The paper said that the authors used the data of the Dutch National Register to gauge the number of severe and fatal side effects per 100,000 vaccinations. But the Dutch reporting system maintained by uh, the Netherlands Pharmacovigilance Center called Larub, includes a prominent disclaimer explicitly stating that a reported side effect may not be from the vaccine, similar to the adverse event reporting system here in the U.S., which we've explained. Okay, so as you can see, the argument from both of these, from both factcheck.org and PolitiFact, is that the Dutch data, which is similar in some ways to the U.S. VAERS system, this adverse drug reaction system, their argument is that the Dutch data is inaccurate because the reports aren't verified. Okay, so we're going to address that in a second. But first of all, the journal did retract this study. The journal is called Vaccines. It's a, it's a medical journal that's based in Switzerland, and they did retract the study. They didn't just add a note to it. The retraction happened on July 2nd, based on the Dutch adverse drug reaction data. Remember that, because it's key to why this is bullshit. So the authors of this study, God bless them, you are going to just die when you hear this. The authors issued a rebuttal. The author, there's three authors, three scientists, Harold Wallach, 
Rainer Clement, and Wouter Akama. Okay, they issued a rebuttal to the retraction and they issued it to a specific person. They say this is a response to the incorrect use of data argument by Professor Dr. Eugene Van Pugenbrock. This is what they say, the authors of the study. Quote, we are grateful to Professor Van Pugenbrock for raising his concerns. This starts a long overdue debate on how to gauge the safety of COVID-19 vaccines. We would like to remind Professor Van Pugenbrock and all readers, these vaccines have had an emergency approval without the necessary safety data. Although we would agree with Professor Van Pugenbrock that the self-reporting system of side effects for vaccines and other drugs is far from foolproof, it is the only data we have. So why should it not be put to use? Good question. They go on to say, it's interesting to note that Professor Pugenbrock, in his concern, describes the Larab adverse drug reaction data as, quote, spontaneous reporting. But in a statement in Regulatory Science 2021, he says, and I quote, the Netherlands Pharmacovigilance Center Larab collected 34,000 reports of adverse drug reactions in 2019, of which 14,000 reports are submitted directly to Larab by healthcare professionals and patients, and more than 20,000 were forwarded by the marketing authorization holders. These reports are assessed and analyzed, which may lead to safety signals about adverse drug reactions. Remember, this is the, this guy that's writing what I'm reading right now. This is the guy who critiqued the study using this Larab Dutch data, okay? So the critic says, these, the reports, are reported to and reviewed by the Medicines Evaluation Board supporting the MIB and its decisions in pharmacovigilance in the Netherlands and Europe. So you can see a contradiction. For drugs, it can signal adverse side effects, but for the COVID-19 vaccine, somehow it becomes totally inaccurate, unusable data. So the authors in their rebuttal, the authors of the study in their rebuttal say, so what is really true and what should we go by? Is it true that roughly 60% of the adverse drug reaction data come from market authorization holders who by law are required to report? And is it true that the data are reviewed as stated on the website and in this article, or are these informations only true in all other cases, but not in the case of COVID-19 vaccines? It would be good to have clarity on this point, they say. This is so brutal, it's the best takedown. The authors say, we assumed that what Larab says about all other adverse drug reaction reports is also true of COVID-19 adverse drug reaction reports. If we were mistaken in this assumption, perhaps Larab should clearly state, ADR reports are reviewed and evaluated in all cases of ADR report, but not with COVID-19 vaccines. Like I said, brutal. And ideally, the author said, it should also give a reason why this is so, if it is so. So they go on to say, ideally, the consequence of this debate is that someone sets up a systematic observational postmarking surveillance study in a large number of vaccinated persons under public scrutiny to really document the side effects that can be causally related to the vaccine. Currently, we have only association, association we agree, and we never said anything else. Now, this is the good part. Listen very carefully to this. This is the part that blew my mind when I read it. They say, and I quote, the authors of the study say, but the same is true with fatalities as consequences of SARS-CoV-2 infections. The cases that are counted here as deaths are rarely vetted by autopsy or second opinion, but still counted as deaths due to COVID-19. And it is exactly this allegedly high number of COVID-19 related deaths that gave rise to an unprecedented sloppy regulation process that allowed new types of vaccines using a mechanism never before tested in humans to be widely distributed in the population." End quote. If your mind is not blown by this, 
blown by this. This is the most brutal smackdown I've ever heard. And they go on, they go on to target this, uh, their critic again, basically the professor that got their study retracted. They say, Professor Pugenbrock basically argues that the largest vaccination experiment in the history of medicine cannot be assessed for safety and unforeseeable toxicities because we should not use the ADR data for such inferences. In contrast, we argue that it is mandatory that those data, which are at hand, are used to gauge the safety, and this is what we have done. We're happy to admit that these data are far from perfect, but we repeat, they are the only ones that are available. They say, we quoted Larab itself, which states on its website, at the time we checked the data, all reports received are checked for completeness and possible ambiguities. If necessary, additional information is requested from the reporting party and or the treating doctor. The report is entered into the database with all the necessary information. Side effects are coded according to the applicable applicable international standards. Subsequently, an individual assessment of the report is made. These reports are forwarded to the European database and the database of the World Health Organization Collaborating Center for International Drug Monitoring. The registration holders are informed about the reports concerning their product. That's what the Dutch system says. So these aren't haphazard um, submissions. These are analyzed and sent and used by the World Health Organization, by European medicines uh, places. These data are used, but somehow the authors of this study aren't allowed to use them. They conclude by saying, we took the statement to mean that those reports are obviously without any foundation, are taken out such that the database is at least reliable to some degree. Would it not be like that? Why else would one want to collect these data and make them public in the first place? They say, we're happy to concede that the data we use, the large Israeli field study to gauge the number needed to vaccinate, and the Larab data to estimate side effects and harms are far from perfect. And we said so in our paper. But we did not use them incorrectly. We used imperfect data correctly. That's a huge clarification. We are not responsible for the validity and correctness of the data, they say, but for the correctness of the analysis. We contend that our analysis was correct. We agreed with Larab that their data is not good enough, but this is not our fault, nor can one deduce incorrect use of data or incorrect analysis. And we hope that this stimulates governments or university consortia to collect valid data to prove us wrong. We would be the first to be happy about that, but the challenge is out. Prove that the vaccines are safe. No one has done so. We say they are not, and we use the best data currently at hand. Our usage was correct. If the data were not, whose fault is that? End quote. These authors, I mean, I want to give them a round of applause. They're probably, this is probably the end of their scientific and medical career, but kudos to them. They're doing the right thing. They're putting science and their integrity first. These authors are outstanding. But the one point that must be made that I just, again, my mind was blown when I read this point. Isn't the vaccine itself which remember, is not FDA approved, it's under emergency authorization use, isn't the vaccine itself emergency use predicated on the same imperfect data used to categorize the deaths of people with COVID? I don't know what to say. I have literally never seen a more brutal smackdown. All of this goes to show that there are powerful forces working against the truth. Big government, big pharma, the mainstream media, Democrats, here and around the world, and I report this study, and I get smacked down by exactly what I just said, by big tech, by these, by these fact, so-called fact-checking organizations. I can't even report it without opinion, without getting stifled. Please join us on Locals, by the way, where I report the reality of COVID studies and data to you on a regular basis, the kind of stuff I'm not allowed to say publicly on big tech or I'm subjected to this. We have some big stories about COVID tomorrow exclusively on Locals. 
Okay, before we move on to the next story, and it's a good one, let's talk about Nutrafol for a moment. When it comes to thinning hair, you no longer have to choose between natural remedies and those that work. There's a holistic solution for men that promotes both healthier hair and whole body wellness without drugs or prescriptions. Nutrafol is clinically shown to improve hair growth, thickness, and visible scalp coverage without compromise. 21 potent natural ingredients support sex drive, better sleep, and less stress. In a clinical study, men showed progressive improvement in hair growth and thickness after three and six months. Nutrafol is also trusted and recommended by more than 1,500 top doctors. Now remember, healthier hair growth does take time. You'll begin to experience thicker, stronger, faster growing hair in three to six months. You can grow thicker, healthier hair, and you can support our show. It's a win-win. By going to Nutrafol.com and entering the promo code Liz to save $15 off your first month's subscription. This is their best offer anywhere, and it's only available to U.S. customers for a limited time. Plus, free shipping on every order. Get $15 off at Nutrafol.com, spelled N-U-T-R-A-F-O-L.com, promo code Liz. Get thicker, healthier hair to get today. Nutrafol.com, promo code Liz. Okay, let's talk about Tucker Carlson. Tucker Carlson, as you may have heard, made an allegation on his show that the NSA was snooping on his emails and text messages in an effort to potentially leak information that would take his show off the air. And I read a lot about this because this is a pretty significant claim. It's a very serious allegation to make, and I wanted to see if it had bones. And here's my analysis. I see no reason not to believe Tucker Carlson. I don't. The whistleblower that he's talking about, who gave him this information, told him that the NSA was essentially snooping on his emails, had information, according to Tucker, that could only be known if someone had read his emails and texts. So that's that's a pretty detailed allegation. And if you give a pretty detailed allegation, then it becomes easier to disprove if it's false. So he gave a detailed allegation. And the other question, why would Tucker Carlson lie here? Right? It would be very easy to disprove. But none of those are the reason why I think that this allegation is pretty believable. Let me go through the reasons why I think this is believable. So a friend of mine, Fred Flights, he's the former chief of staff to um, National Security Advisor John Bolton. He was the former chief of staff to the National Security Council. He was a career CIA himself, and he was a whistleblower while at the CIA. He also worked for the House Intelligence Committee. He says he did not believe Carlson when Carlson first made this allegation, um, but he does now. He writes at The Federalist, and I want to read this to you. He he says, and I quote, I laughed when Fox News host Tucker Carlson said a national security agency whistleblower told him that agency was monitoring his emails to leak them in an attempt to take a show off the air. From my 19 years as a CIA analyst and five years with House Intelligence Committee staff, I found this impossible to believe for three reasons. First, Flights writes, I believed NSA's huge and lumbering bureaucracy would never agree to such a flagrant violation of that agency's foreign intelligence charter to spy on a leading conservative American journalist. Even if most NSA officials and analysts dislike Carlson, I assume they would view violating NSA rules and the law to monitor him as too risky, since a leak was certain given how extremely controversial such an action would be and the large number of NSA personnel who would know about it. Flight says, second, the NSA spying on Carlson would have to be approved at the highest level of the Biden administration, probably by National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan. I believe Sullivan and the other senior Biden officials were too risk adverse to order NSA surveillance of Carlson. Third, I have little regard for high profile NSA whistleblowers, too many of whom have been disgruntled former employees pursuing personal agendas. Flight says, I therefore dismissed Carlson's claim that the NSA was reading his emails. Then I saw this extraordinary denial from the NSA. 
This is the NSA's denial. On June 28th, 2021, Tucker Carlson alleged that the NSA had been monitoring our electronic communications and is planning to leak them in an attempt to take the show off the air. This allegation, the NSA says, is untrue. Tucker Carlson has never been an intelligence target of the agency, and the NSA has never had any plans to try to take his program off the air. NSA has a foreign intelligence mission. We target foreign powers to generate insights on foreign activities that could harm the United States. With limited exceptions, i.e. an emergency, NSA may not target a U.S. citizen without a court order that explicitly authorizes the targeting, end quote. So I'll give my analysis in a second because that's obviously a horrible denial, which essentially makes me believe Tucker Carlson's allegation. But this is what Flight says. He says, let's be very clear about what the NSA said in its statement. It denied targeting Carlson, but it did not deny reading his emails. The NSA also did not deny that it may have accessed Carlson's communications through, quote, incidental collection. These were huge omissions, Flight says, since incidental collection is a well-known and controversial way the NSA collects vast amounts of Americans' communications without warrants. This happens when an innocent American communicates with a legitimate NSA target, such as someone believed to be under control of or to be collaborating with a hostile foreign power. When this happens, the name of the innocent American is supposed to be redacted or masked. There are very strict rules on how incidentally collected communications of U.S. citizens can be used. I'm going to just pause flights for just a second. You may recall a very high-level American whose name was unmasked by the Obama administration um, when it was collected incidentally in communications. Yes, I'm talking about General Michael Flynn here. So it's not like the NSA doesn't have, hasn't set precedent for this kind of thing. Flights concludes, given the controversy that arose from Obama officials requesting the names of Trump campaign officials be unmasked in 2016, tougher rules were enacted to protect the identities of the communications of Americans that the NSA incidentally collected. In addition, the 27, in 2017, the NSA claims it ended its controversial upstream collection surveillance practice of collecting email traffic of American citizens merely because it contained an email address or phone number of a foreign agent. The NSA's non-denial of Carlson's allegations, therefore, raises some serious questions. Why did the NSA not flatly state it never accessed Carlson's communications? Were Carlson's communications unmasked at the request of White House officials? End quote. The rest of that article can be read at thefederalist.com. It was written, as I said, by Fred Flight. He was the former chief of staff for the National Security Council, career CIA officer or career CIA analyst. He also worked at the House Intel Committee for years. Intel is his world. And he's right about this. This denial is terrible. The NSA denial is pathetic. It's actually, it's actually beyond pathetic. It's insulting to our intelligence. They did not deny the allegation. They never said no. We, nor any one of us in this community has ever read or accessed Tucker Carlson's texts or emails. If that were the case, if they had never done that, why wouldn't they say that? They're not stupid. If they hadn't read his emails, why wouldn't they say that? But they didn't deny it. They just denied the motive that Tucker Carlson had ascribed to them. That's not good enough. If federal intelligence services of the United States government are snooping on the communications of political commentators, regardless of whether they have a motive to take that person off the air, to silence that person, the American people deserve to know. Big Brother government is not just a violation of our privacy, even though it, it also is that. It's dangerous because that's how governments control their people. If governments use the power of government to silence dissenters, to silence distractors or detractors, 
to silence anybody who doesn't fall in line with their ideology, that's the sign of a tyrannical authoritarian government. And by the way, do we give the NSA the benefit of the doubt here? I don't. I don't give any of the intelligence community the benefit of the doubt because of what's happened in the past couple of years. Think about the Ukraine whistleblower during Trump. This was the Ukraine whistleblower, whistleblower, that the Democrats used as justification to impeach President Trump. This was a nothing burger. This was obviously someone who worked at the National Security Council who disliked President Trump. In his opinion, Trump's policy towards the Ukraine was not what the whistleblower thought that the policy should be. It was a policy dispute. This was proven. We had the readout of the phone call that the whistleblower alleged uh, was so evil and violated laws and put our national security at risk. We read the readout. You can disagree with the policy all you want. That's absolutely your prerogative. You can cast your vote accordingly. But was the law broken? No. But the intelligence community tried to weaponize, well, intelligence, if you will, to take down a politician they didn't like. So they have a history of this. And then go back to Russia collusion. The same thing happened. The FBI, the Department of Justice, probably the CIA, tried, not only did they snoop on Trump campaign officials, they unmasked the names of Trump campaign officials. They then tried to entrap them. They tried to accuse the Trump campaign and then the Trump administration and Trump himself of treason, of colluding with Russia, a hostile foreign nation, in order to get him out of office. They tried to weaponize the intelligence community to do so. So do I give the NSA the benefit of the doubt? Absolutely not. And the language of their denial just cements that 100%. Conservatives, Republicans in Congress, this is a place that we need to play offense here. This should be investigated. There should be hearings. There should be FOIA requests. There should be audits and oversight of the intelligence community to make sure that innocent American citizens are not having their rights infringed upon by these big daddy governments snooping swamp creatures in the intelligence community. That's my analysis of this. Now, before we get to the next story, which is a doozy, speaking of reporting things that the mainstream media will not report or that the Democrats don't want you to hear, if for some reason big tech kicks me off once and for all, don't worry. I will not be silenced. So I want to make sure I have the ability to stay in touch with you. That's why I'm asking you today to subscribe to our email list at lizwheelershow.com. If you want to make sure that you never lose access to the Liz Wheeler Show and all of the content I'm delivering to you, join my email list, please. It's very important to me that we can stay in touch if that ever does happen to us, because regardless, I'm here to stay. So go to lizwheelershow.com and drop your email so that I can still reach out to you if, or God forbid when, Big Tech pulls the plug. That's lizwheelershow.com and drop your email address to me. Let's talk about the violent summer that we're having. This We experienced this last summer. It's not particularly new, but it continues this summer. And it's very important that we analyze why this is happening. Because obviously the left is lying to us about why it's happening. They claim that it's because of white supremacy. They claim it's because Republicans are wanting to defund the police. They have all kinds of nutty claims. So let's talk about what is happening first. So over July 4th weekend, which unfortunately is a notoriously violent weekend, um, ABC7 in Chicago reported that 85 people were shot, 14 fatally. This happened across the city just over this one weekend. ABC7 says law enforcement personnel were also affected as a Chicago police commander and a sergeant were shot and wounded early Monday while dispersing a crowd on the west side. The commander was struck in the foot and the sergeant was grazed in the leg, according to police. Both officers were transported to Stroger Hospital. The shooter has not been located, according to police. 
85 people shot in that one city, 14 shot fatally just over the weekend. It's amazing to me that the Black Lives Matter movement, because by the way, the majority of these victims whose lives were ended by homicide were black people. But the Black Lives Matter movement, oh, they don't care about these black lives because most of the time these black lives were taken by other black lives. Not just Chicago, in New York City over July 4th weekend, Local New York City uh, outlet ABC News 10 reported, quote, a total of 26 people were shot, 26, were shot between midnight Friday morning and midnight Monday morning. This is according to the New York City Police Department. Same thing happened in Atlanta. Fox 5 Atlanta reported that, quote, police are investigating murder in the middle of a fight between as many as 50 kids. That happened on Saturday night, apparently. In my hometown of Cincinnati, two teenagers were killed in a shooting on July 4th. One was 16, one was 19. Apparently, they were having some kind of feud, but according to uh, WCPO, which is the ABC outlet in Cincinnati, three other teenagers, two girls and a boy, all under the age of 18, were injured in the crossfire. All three are hospitalized, and the 17-year-old girl's injuries are life-threatening. Can you believe that this is happening in our country? And Biden, who claims to be uh, a champion for inner city, he claims to be, you know, he's the one who said, if you don't know who you're voting for, Trump or me, then you ain't black. He claims to be a champion of black Americans. Nothing. He says nothing. Nothing. According to the Gun Violence Archive, this is um, an organization that, uh, I mean, it's self-explanatory. It tracks shootings. From July 2nd to July 4th, at least 145 people were killed. 354 people were injured due to gun violence. This is happening in our inner cities. This is happening. And it's not just murders, by the way, that are happening. There's also theft and robbery. Up in San Francisco, um, it was this, a robbery took place that it's almost impossible to believe happened. Neiman Marcus, which is a high-end, obviously, uh, place to shop, was looted by a gang of people who were obviously in coordination. They went in, stole expensive purses, and then after they came out, they got in cars and fled away together. There's video of this. Take a look. How unbelievable is that? But in case you think this is just good old-fashioned crime and that we need more police officers, we need to investigate this robbery. No, no, that's not what should happen according to an official from the San Francisco District Attorney's Office. No, no, this, unbelievable, this official whose name is Kate Chatfield says that the crime surge, the fears of this crime surge in San Francisco are actually linked to racism. Well, I don't know about you, but it has nothing to do with race when thugs rob Neiman Marcus run away with the loot. I don't care the race of the perpetrator. I want them caught. That's unsafe for the community. But Kate Chatfield, of course, let's remember who she works for. Who is the district attorney in the city of San Francisco? Chessa Bowden. We talked about Chessa Bowden before. Chessa Bowden is the son of weather underground terrorists who once they were convicted was raised by Bill Ayers. Chessa Bowden is an anti-prosecution seemingly pro-crime district attorney. 
So maybe it's no wonder that Kate Chatfield, who works for him, says that if you are scared for your family, then this, this is her tweet exactly. She said, husbands are scared for their wives. Your reminder that the crime surge crowd shares the same ideology as the birth of a nation. The birth of a nation is a white supremacist film. So now if you're worried about a crime surge in San Francisco, you're a racist, you're a white supremacist. It could have nothing to do, by the way, with the fact that um, vehicle break-ins up 100% in San Francisco. Some In some parts of San Francisco, over 750%. That's according to the police department. And remember, by the way, any reports of crime rates going down in our country are most likely because there are fewer arrests happening because of the left's effort to defund the police. And that brings us to the point. The reason for this crime surge in our country, defund the police, these Soros-funded anti-prosecution district attorneys like Chesa Bowden, no cash bail in Democrat-controlled cities, aka Democrats and Democrat policies are hurting people. And it's not difficult to see why. It's not because of guns. It's not because of Republicans. It's not even because of the economy, which the government admittedly destroyed because of COVID. No. It's because the Democrats are defunding police. The Democrats are feeding the Black Lives Matter narrative that Black people are being indiscriminately murdered by police officers when that is not the case. Then we have prosecutors who are funded, whose election has been funded by Soros because they are not anti-crime, they are anti-prosecution. And then we have no cash bail, which is allowing just terrible criminals back onto the street. So you see this crime surge. It's no wonder people like Kate Chatfield want to blame a boogeyman, want to say, oh, you're white supremacist if you're worried about your family being targeted by these criminals. They don't want to take responsibility because the Democrats know it's their fault. The Democrats are hurting people with their own policies, and we can see it happening before our very eyes. Okay, I want to tell you guys about uh, one of my own tweets from this weekend, not to pat myself on the back. There was a viral tweet that went around Twitter this weekend. It was of a man whose username was Lakota Man. He was Native American, I suppose. And he was flipping the bird at Mount Rushmore. He and his two children, actually, were flipping, I'm glad it's a family affair, were flipping the bird at Mount Rushmore, claiming that it was stolen land, right? So this went viral because this is a favorite narrative of the left to pretend that America is illegitimate because America was stolen from the Native Americans. Here's the thing. So Lakota, this is a funny, a funny aspect that Lakota man forgot to mention too. The Lakota themselves stole the Black Hills. The Black Hills, of course, are where Mount Rushmore uh, is located. The Lakota stole the Black Hills from the Cheyenne, whom the Lakota conquered in guess what year? 1776. Ironic, given this dude's post. Funny how Lakota Man forgot to mention that in his post. See, the history of the world is a history of war and conquest. It doesn't mean that a nation is illegitimate because they participated in a war. But if it were, then the Lakota's claim that the Black Hills are sacred would be illegitimate because the Lakota stole that land from the Cheyenne. Speaking of that, there's a petition that is also going around uh, calling for the land to be returned, United States land to be returned. This petition, believe it or not, has garnered more than 44,000 signatures. Um, the point of this is for the United States to give land back to Native American tribes um, that they took it from. So here's my question, though. If we are supposed to return the land, to whom are we returning it? This petition claims that returning our land is the first step toward reparations. Well, as I said, the history of our world is a history of war and conquest, and we cannot forget that 
the United States, this is uh, so funny that the left is so egocentric, that the United States history is not the only history. The history of the land extended far before the United States was the United States, before um, our government had been established. In fact, Indian tribes, Native American tribes in the United States historically stole land from each other. Um, they warred against each other. They enslaved each other. It was violent and it was brutal. So if we're returning the land, who do we return it to? Do we return it to the Native American tribes who were here directly before us? Or do we return it to the tribe that they had stolen it from? Or the tribe before that, that they had stolen it from? That's right. The history of our world is a history of war and conquest, and Democrats are ridiculous. They just don't like the United States, apparently. Here's a nuanced take that I have that I want to share with you guys. So it's about the Olympics. Super excited for the Olympics to come up. An American sprinter, her name is Shakari Richardson. She's been disqualified from the Olympics. She's not allowed to compete anymore because she tested positive for marijuana. According to Yahoo Sports, she was a favorite in the 100-meter dash at the Olympics that are upcoming. She tested positive for marijuana last month and won't be able to run her signature race at the Tokyo Games. They say, quote, the U.S. Anti-Doping Agency announced Friday morning that Richardson had accepted a one-month suspension after testing positive for THC, the primary psychoactive compound of cannabis. The positive test occurred after Richardson won the 100 at U.S. Olympic trials on June 19th. She has been retroactively disqualified from trials, and her place in the event in Tokyo has been handed to the fourth-place finisher. Here's my take. I agree that it's unfair. She shouldn't be allowed to compete if she used marijuana. She claims that her biological mother had just died, and I feel for her in that case. I'm sure that she was grieving and it was traumatic. Um, even if she suffered anxiety, she mentioned she had mental health issues. Fine. I, I feel empathy towards her for that. However, in an Olympic competition, even if you're using marijuana for anxiety, calmness is a huge indicator of performance. Every athlete knows that nerves can make or break a performance. So using marijuana, even if it's for calmness, even if it's for anxiety, it is a performing enha performance enhancing drug. It should be banned. So in that sense, I'm sorry she made that decision and I'm sorry that she won't be able to represent the US team, but it is unfair if she was, if her performance was enhanced by this drug. However, anything that is illegally performance enhancing should be banned. Therefore, so should being a man in women's Olympic competitions. Ian Hayworth reminds us that the Olympic Committee allows biological men who identify as women, who have testosterone levels lower than 10 nanomoles per meter to compete with women as women, he says. Hayworth says the average testosterone levels for women, he means actual women, 0.5 to 2.4 nanomoles per liter. That's nearly five times. So biological male can have nearly five times the average amount of testosterone than biological women and still compete. So if marijuana is performance enhancing and someone's disqualified for using it, then why are we not disqualifying biological men from women's competition? It's as if the Olympic Committee says, okay, ladies, here are the rules. It's unfair if you smoke a joint, but if you have a penis, well, you're a-okay. It is unfair. And it's not transphobic or anything to say so. Well, my producer in my ear, you can't hear him, but he is telling me that's all the time we have for today. We do have a lot of stories coming up tomorrow. A lot to talk about, a lot to discuss. In the meantime, think for yourself, use critical thought, reject critical theory, question authority, follow the facts, and don't let government or corporate wokeism or anybody bully you into being a sheep. Please subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts. Download the episodes, give us five-star ratings, give us a glowing review, please. Thank you for watching as usual. I'm Liz Wheeler. This is The Liz Wheeler Show. The Liz Wheeler Show is produced by Jonathan Hay. Executive producer, Chad Abbott. 
Director of Photography, Kevin McRoberts. Editor, Stephen Reyes. Assistant Editor, Michael Wall. Assistant Editor, Tommy Weber. Sound Mixer, Robin Fenderson. Post-Production Manager, Victoria Metzel. Director of Marketing, Emily Washler. Senior Publicist, Patricia Jackson. And Production Assistant, Mickey Pisani. This has been a Soundfront production.